Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Timothy Dees was born on April 10, 1996, and was described as very sweet and funny. At the age of 26, Timothy, who went by Timmy, lived in Crevcore, Missouri, and enjoyed dancing and listening to music. He worked at St. Louis's Local 6, handling the stage rigging, which included working with the ropes, booms, and lifts. His father said he also loved setting up for concerts and operating the lights. On February 25, 2022, his lifelong friend, Caleb Nanny, picked him up to go to Fredericktown for the weekend. Three days later, on February 28, he was seen on video at the Sea Barn gas station on West Main Street around 1.30 a.m. A few hours later, around 4.30 a.m., Timmy was seen at his friend's house on Village Creek Road. Soon after, a call to 911 was placed from Timmy's phone near County Road 277 off Highway 72. The person on the phone told the operator that someone was chasing him, but when the police arrived, Timmy was nowhere to be found. They did, however, find someone with a warrant, arrested him, and went about their night. Two days later, on March 2nd, his mother, Barbara Hall, tried to report him missing, but was told that she couldn't prove Timmy went missing in Madison County. They were also told that the 911 call wasn't recorded due to budget cuts that prevented the recording system from being repaired after it was struck by lightning. According to the dispatcher, a frantic voice on the other end said, Someone is chasing me. Strangely, the chief of the Fredericktown Police Department said he was confused about the recording system because they had paid a lot of money to Madison County to have the system repaired, and he assumed it was already up and running again. This made him wonder where the money had gone to. Timmy's parents had been to Fredericktown to search for their son on their own numerous times. They even spoke with people who were with him on the night of the 27th and the morning of the 28th, but his parents said they haven't been overly helpful. Unfortunately, the police waited over a month to begin their search for him. Barbara tried to contact the Madison County Sheriff's Department for updates on the case, but they have never returned even a single phone call. Ironically, elected Sheriff McCutcheon has been the director of Madison County 911 Communications since 2013. She allegedly lied and said she was working with Barbara to find Timmy, but Barbara said she had never even spoke to her, not even once. Barbara then organized her own search around an alleged drug house on Village Creek Drive in Fredericktown, where the 911 call was made on the night he disappeared. They even brought in dogs to search for Timmy around town, and they hit on two storage units. Sheriff McCutcheon was called, and when she arrived, she said, My town, my show. 
She then had one storage unit opened, found nothing, and refused to open the second one. Her reason was that the second unit belonged to one of her officers, and she claimed he was a good cop and they already checked it. Sheriff McCutcheon then claimed the dogs were probably smelling a dead mouse, ended the search, and made everyone leave. A government official who was close friends with Barbara said they heard Sheriff McCutcheon on several occasions say, let the druggies kill the druggies, not my problem. Barbara then began standing outside the courthouse holding a sign with Timmy's face on it. One day, Caleb, the friend who took Timmy to Fredericktown, approached her and told her that Timmy had run off, adopted a new identity, and started a new life elsewhere. This conversation would become even more suspicious because five months later, on July 21, 2022, Timmy's remains were found in a dry creek bed on private property only 200 yards from the house on Village Creek Drive. Timmy was found without his phone or shoes, which makes it look like someone was definitely chasing him and he didn't have time to put his shoes on. There's also controversy surrounding the pathologist in the case. In 2022, he listed 19-year-old Durante Martin's cause of death as taking his own life, but a jury later changed it to death by violence. Dr. Deidecker has worked in Missouri and Illinois for the last 28 years and has ruled on countless deaths. His opinion in cases has even been used to determine if a suspect should receive the death penalty. People now believe he is giving out get-out-of-jail-free cards to violent criminals in the form of inaccurate autopsies. He was also involved in 18-year-old Michaela Jones's case and ruled her cause of death an overdose. Before her death, she told her mom that she knew for a fact that Durante was murdered. A second autopsy was performed and found that while there were drugs in her system, it wasn't a lethal amount. They concluded that there was possible evidence of foul play. Andrew Pierce and Ethan Sivey had dumped her body after the alleged overdose. It was later revealed that the lead investigator, Detective Stephen Ryan, was friends with Ethan Sivey's mother, and he was subsequently removed from the case. Pierce and Sivey were charged with abandonment of a corpse and tampering with physical evidence. Strangely, in March 2021, Pierce's girlfriend, Desiree Link, died from an alleged overdose three months before Michaela's death. She had posted she was in a relationship with Pierce on February 22nd, and by March 29th, she was dead. Then there was the case of 20-year-old Nick Lowry, who Dr. D. Dyker said also took his own life in 2014. Strangely, Nick and Durante's death both occurred on James Wade's property. Dr. D. Dyker also determined the cause of death for Delo Rogers at the Farmington Correctional Center, and the family requested a second opinion. Prison officials called Delo's mother and told her that Delo's heart had given out and that he had fallen. Dr. D. Dyker then ruled the cause of death acute fentanyl intoxication, even though he had two black eyes, a bruise, and scratches on the side of his neck. However, a second autopsy performed by Stephen Godfrey showed the cause of death was asphyxia from aspiration of gastric emesis, meaning he suffocated on his own vomit. He also said there was a clear indication that an assault had taken place. As you can see, there are a lot of alleged wrongdoings in the county. A lot of people are putting the blame on Sheriff Katie Jo McCutcheon, who is now in her second term. 
Several families have said she refused to do her job and take responsibility. St. Louis Channel 5 News caught her in a parking lot and questioned her regarding missing evidence. Here's that video. I have no paperwork, nothing saying that there was a ring ever seized. So no ring was found at the scene? No, no ring was found at the scene. Well, this is a warrant application. Okay. And it says your deputy found the ring in the car. Okay. Well, there was a gold ring, but when, uh, when the, de the other deputy went, then, um, here, you can have that back. I, he, he's, I'm going off what the deputy says. That was, I guess that was hearsay. I don't, I don't know why he put that. You should know your facts if you're a deputy submitting something to the prosecutor, though. That's true. You can't yes. lie. That's right? true. Absolutely. So, so is that a lie? I'm not going to answer that question. If you found the ring, where did it go? I have no idea. I have no idea. We don't, we don't have any record of a ring. Is this a record? That's a record. I, I mean, I, I don't have I don't have the ring. Is it just a case of missing evidence? It could be a case of missing evidence, misplaced evidence. It kind of begs the question, is any other evidence missing? Um, I hope not. We are now midway through 2023, and a cause of death has yet to be released, and this case remains unsolved. Madison Geraldine Scott was born on April 29, 1991, to Eldon and Dawn Scott and went by Maddie. At the age of 20, Maddie was living in Vanderhoof, British Columbia, Canada, and enjoyed dirt biking, working on her truck, horseback riding, team sports, and hanging out with her friends. She even worked as an apprentice heavy-duty mechanic in the logging industry with her father. Her brother described her as someone who was as comfortable in a dress as she was in work coveralls. On the night of May 27, 2011, Maddie and her friend from school, Jordy, drove to Hogsback Lake near Vanderhoof for their friend Garrett's birthday party. They planned to stay the night at the campsite and had packed a tent, beer cooler, and their overnight bags into Maddie's 1990 Ford F-150. Once there, they realized they had forgotten the poles for the tent, so they drove 25 minutes back to Maddie's house to get them and then returned to the campsite. Once back, they set up their tent at the entrance to the park next to a picnic table and fire pit with a nice view of the lake. Since the invite was posted publicly, around 45 people showed up, some of whom were not actually friends with the intended guest. At some point, Maddie went into the tent to lie down. Jordy stayed up by the campfire and continued drinking with the other guest. Around midnight, a fight broke out, and an intoxicated Jordy fell into the fire and was injured. A couple of hours later, at around 2 a.m., Jordy decided to leave with a man she was dating and asked Maddie to come along. However, Maddie was upset and begged her to stay, saying she couldn't leave all her things behind. Around 2.45 a.m., when the party started dismantling, many of the partygoers left. The next morning, Jordy and her boyfriend returned to the campsite at about 8.30 a.m. to retrieve Jordy's clothes and sleeping bag. Jordy found Maddie's tent unzipped with her sleeping bags and items moved to the side, but there was no Maddie. Not thinking much of it, Jordy and her boyfriend left. Other partygoers returned to the campsite to clean up the next morning and saw Maddie's truck was still parked in the lot, but never checked to see if she was in her tent. 
However, later that night, there was another party at the campsite, and Maddie's items were still there. This time, there were about 150 people, but once again, there was no sign of Maddie. By Sunday, when Maddie failed to return home, her parents drove to the lake and found her truck and tent still there. After looking through her items, they noticed Maddie had left her purse and keys behind. Her parents were now very concerned and quickly reported her missing. Missing from her belongings was her phone, and it's unknown if her cell phone records have revealed any clues. Over the years, many ground and water searches have been conducted, but they all turned up empty-handed. They even interviewed every party-goer from the parties on the 27th and 28th, but once again, nothing. A few months following her disappearance, a man named Fred John went missing from Vanderhoof, British Columbia as well. His head was later found in a vacant house on a reserve near Fort St. James, but the rest of his body has never been found. The police released information stating they believe he was beaten to death in the basement of the home by around 20 people. There was a rumor that he was Maddie's boyfriend. However, her parents have stated this was not the case. They were on the same baseball team and hung out around some of the same people, but they never dated. In May 2023, almost 12 years after her disappearance, a search warrant was executed on a rural property east of Vanderhoof, leading to the full discovery of human remains. Sadly, the remains belonged to Maddie and were found several kilometers from Hogsback Lake. After she was discovered, rumors began floating around regarding how investigators zeroed in on the location where she was found. But since the case remains an open investigation, detectives remain tight-lipped. Hopefully soon, her family can finally get some long-awaited answers, but as of July 2023, Maddie's death remains unsolved. Jennifer Sue Isles was born on February 2, 1982, in Covington, Kentucky, to parents Susan and Jerry Isles, and went by Jenny. At the age of seven, Jeannie was a first grader at John G. Carlisle Elementary School. On April 21, 1989, Jeannie was walking from her home on Banklick Street to a friend's home when she tragically went missing. A witness would say that she gave Jeannie directions and saw her headed down the sidewalk on 16th Street toward the intersection of 16th and Euclid Avenue. For days, search parties scoured the area looking for poor little Jenny. Finally, on May 1st, her remains were found in a boarded-up abandoned house at 1417 Chesapeake Street, about seven blocks from her home. Her body was discovered at around 2.15 p.m. by an unidentified man looking for aluminum cans. Sadly, her remains had been desecrated by dogs and was unrecognizable. As the news spread quickly, a crowd began to gather outside the abandoned home. The owner of the premises where the body was discovered later testified he visited the premises to check for the missing child three days before she was discovered. He neither found her body nor detected a smell from the decomposition. The only access to the premises was through a window that was too high to reach, except by climbing up on a cinder block. 
four days after Jenny went missing, Michael Funk was arrested in nearby Norwood, Ohio, and charged with gross sexual imposition on a 19-month-old he was babysitting. While in jail, inmates would say that Funk made comments that led them to believe he was involved in Jenny's murder. He was later indicted and charged with capital murder and first-degree burglary. A jury would then find him guilty of first-degree burglary and involuntary manslaughter. Jenny's family was glad the ordeal was finally over and that Funk was off the streets. However, that excitement wouldn't last long because he was later acquitted after an appeal raised six issues with the case. The main issue was that the photos presented didn't pertain directly to the expert pathologist's testimony. Instead, the photos showed her body in a state of decay that occurred after her death, and her clothing was in disarray because dogs had moved the body. There was also the problem with physical evidence since there was none to link Funk to the murder. An FBI agent even testified that a human hair found on her sock came from a person of a different race. After being acquitted, he was tried again, but the trial ended in a hung jury. As of July 2023, he has not been retried, and this case remains unsolved. Tina Elizabeth Foglia was born on November 12, 1962. At the age of 19, she was working as a home health aide and living with her family at 15 Lloyd Drive in Brentwood, New York. She was described as social and adventurous, enjoyed immersing herself in fun, and was considered a pretty good singer. Tina especially loved the Long Island music scene and going to Hammerhead's music club located at 135 Sunrise Highway. Hammerheads was famous at the time for launching alternative and indie bands such as the Twisted Sisters. On the evening of January 31, 1982, Tina's father saw her leave to spend the evening at Hammerhead's nightclub. She wanted to go to the club that night to see her friend's band Equinox play. However, Tina's family didn't have a car she could use, so she had to find her own ride to the club. She often hitchhiked, even though her family begged her not to, and that's exactly what she did that night. Tina was last seen at 3 a.m. on Monday, February 1, 1982, leaving Hammerheads. It is believed that she left the club alone and may have attempted to hitchhike back to her house in Brentwood. Sadly, she never made it. Tina's last sighting at Hammerheads was the last time she was seen alive. Hammerheads was known as a hotspot for fistfights, drug dealing, public drinking, and other petty crimes. In 1984, it was replaced by another club called Key Largo, before eventually being torn down in the 1990s. Two days after Tina went missing, road workers picking up trash found several plastic bags. The bags were dumped in the brush between the highway ramp and the intersection between North Gardner Drive and Privet Place. The workers suspected the bags contained a body and called the police. Investigators examined the bags and discovered they contained Tina's remains. It's speculated that Tina could have been an early victim of the Long Island serial killer who was known for dismembering his victims. Suffolk County Police discovered 10 bodies in the Gilgo Oak Beach area between December 2010 and April 2011. 
The location where Tina's remains were found is on the route that leads to the location where the remains of the Long Island serial killer's victims have been found. State police shared a picture with media sources that showed a footprint the killer left behind in the mud in a diamond ring that Tina was known to wear. That ring has never been found, but police reiterated that the motive in the case was sexual assault ending in her death and not robbery. People at the club were interviewed, including members from various bands, but it never got investigators any closer to solving the case. Some of the men interviewed over the years have even voluntarily given their DNA for testing. Decades later, Tina's sister Amy mentioned that before Tina's death, she recently met a doctor at Hammerheads that she really liked. In a letter Tina wrote, she mentioned seeing the doctor multiple times before her death but never mentioned his name. The male DNA collected from the garbage bags was entered into CODIS, but there were no matches. In 2017, police announced familial DNA testing would be performed, but it's been six years, and the results have never been released to the public. It's possible they are keeping the genetic genealogy results a secret because the investigation is still ongoing. As of July 2023, Tina's killer has yet to be found, and this case remains unsolved. Nigel Cervanti J. was born on March 22, 1979. At the age of 34, he was living in Hayward, California, and working as a chef at a restaurant in Alameda. He was also known to cook at a homeless shelter in downtown Oakland. Nigel didn't own a vehicle, but during the first weekend of April 2013, he rented a car to drive his father to and from his medical appointments. On April 7, 2013, Nigel was supposed to deliver medicine to his father, but never showed up. He was also supposed to return the rental car to Hertz at the Oakland airport, but he failed to show up for that as well. Nigel's girlfriend and family members spent the following days trying to locate him before finally reporting him missing on April 10, 2013. Throughout the investigation, it was determined that Nigel was last seen around 9 p.m. on April 7th. He went to the 1900 block of Broadway Street in Oakland to bring keys to his friend and strangely vanished after that. A few days later, the rental car Nigel was driving was found abandoned near 98th Avenue in Oakland. The car was unlocked and appeared to be in good shape. There was no sign of a struggle in or around the vehicle and no sign of Nigel either. Since he went missing, his cell phone and bank accounts have not been accessed. Unfortunately, there is little information available, and as of July 2023, Nigel has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.